Hi, Malika here. And we've got some news at the take. First, after this episode, we'll be off for a few weeks. We'll be busy behind the scenes working on some really exciting episodes for the coming months, including our coverage of the 2022 World Cup in Qatar. So today, August 1st, is our last episode for a bit. We'll return in September, and we'll send out an update ahead of our first episode back. And second, I've got some news as well. You're not going to hear me as much in the next few months because I'm going on maternity leave and I'll be back in the new year. I'm expecting two new little additions to my family. But in the meantime, I've been working on a few episodes that will air later this year. So you will still hear my voice. And when we come back from our August hiatus, I'll be handing the mic over to a slate of guest hosts, voices you'll be familiar with on the take. And now for today's episode, we're bringing you something we've been thinking about a lot this summer. Here's the show. There was a global moment where world leaders could have said, hey, you know, our security is contingent on the supply of fossil fuel, and that's just insane. Peter Kalmus is a U.S. climate scientist. And during yet another hot summer, with Russia's war in Ukraine and the ensuing global energy crisis, he's been thinking about all the climate work that's gone straight to the back burner. Instead of doubling down on fossil fuels, let's try to get off of fossil fuels as quickly as we can. And hey, there's going to be this added fringe benefit of stopping catastrophic climate breakdown, right? They didn't say that. The scramble for alternatives to Russian gas seems to have drowned out the most dire warnings on climate change yet. The window for action, still open, is closing in just a few years. We have a choice, collective action or collective suicide. Here's the UN Secretary General in July. No nation is immune, yet we continue to feed our fossil fuel addiction. In the world's wealthiest countries, governments aren't taking enough action to avert catastrophe. And in the face of that inaction, new forms of protest by residents of those countries are growing, including by scientists. I really feel that we are on the verge of essentially losing everything. It's as simple as that. It's as complicated as that. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. My name is Peter Kalmus. I'm a climate scientist working at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Los Angeles, and I'm speaking on my own behalf. I'm talking with Peter because he's a scientist, but I'm also talking to him because back in April, he chained himself to a bank. We are doing civil disobedience at J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, which out of all the banks in the world has done the most to fund fossil fuel projects. This is Alan Chornak another scientist who was there. We've tried being unbiased. We've tried being silent. We have tried the policy game. We have tried celebrities. We have tried everything. 
they were part of an action with a coalition called Scientist Rebellion. Uh, they are calling themselves Scientist Rebellion, and they're calling for a fossil-free future. And what they did when they arrived at this building, they moved to the front doors and handcuffed themselves to the doors. There are said to be scientists here at the scene. In just one day, more than a thousand scientists in 26 countries joined in climate protests. Some of them were arrested, including Peter. And what drove them to do this is the story we wanted to understand. I've talked to people all over the world for The Take about how the climate crisis has changed life forever, including for Peter. He's in California, where I am, which has been facing increasing wildfires through years of heat waves and a drought that seems never-ending. A couple of years ago, in 2020, we had a just unbelievably intense heat wave. Birds were falling out of trees. And then it started a major wildfire that was burning a couple miles away from our house. And we're living and breathing in a um, smoke cloud for weeks and weeks and weeks. But for many people, it still feels abstract, even though the science is crystal clear. We have until the end of the decade to limit global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius, or the future is almost certain to be catastrophic. And we're not nearly moving fast enough. But not many people thus far have reacted like Peter. So what changed for him? When did you realize that the climate crisis was a crisis? Was there a moment for you? It was 2006. I can't remember exactly how it unfolded, but that was a really momentous time for me. My first son was born. 2006 was also the premiere of the U.S. climate change documentary, An Inconvenient Truth. Inconvenient Truth came out, which kind of got me reading some of the scientific papers um, and thinking about how we could get out of this. I was about halfway through my PhD in physics at Columbia University, so I was in New York City. And what was it about that specifically that made you think we're in dire times? You know, I think it was really a combination of having my eyes open to the science. So I was studying astrophysics. I was thinking about gravitational waves and neutron stars and black holes. I wasn't thinking about uh, earth science or climate change. And I started to read up on it and I was like, man, this is, this is insane. Like if everyone on the planet knew what peril we were in, we'd be acting on it and we're not doing that. That combined with, you know, thinking about this little baby and his future going forward and how the planet was changing so fast. I think that kind of short-circuited the parts of my brain that were able to kind of like shut it off and look the other way. Mm-hmm. And now you can't look the other way. So it's, no, it's, it's ramped up quite significantly since 2006. And it seems like you are pretty set on what you see as a solution. For you, the goal is not net zero emissions, which is cutting greenhouse gas emissions to as close to zero as possible. For you, it is zero emissions, which means ending fossil fuel use. Yeah, so 
I think it's um, not well understood that these greenhouse gases, carbon dioxide particularly, has, has a very long lifetime in the atmospheres. A lot of it stays up there for hundreds, even thousands of years. It's such a potent thing. This planet's been here for four and a half billion years. And in a matter of basically my lifetime, you know, over the last several decades, we've just really trashed the place. You know, we've taken the atmosphere from 280 parts per million to uh, 420 parts per million, which is the 50% increase. I mean, that is, that is radical. And that's what got Peter looking for radical solutions. He started by trying to reduce his individual fossil fuel use. I didn't know how to create social change at that time. I didn't have a platform at all. I wasn't even a climate scientist yet. That, that didn't happen until 2012. And I just sort of dove in and had a really good time kind of obsessing over my emissions and reducing them and uh, making friends with neighbors, growing more food. The two biggest things I did were to stop flying and to stop eating meat. He was able to get his own emissions down to around 10% of the average U.S. residents. His actions were far outside the mainstream, but he still wanted to prove it could be done. I, I, I saw it as an experiment, and I was hoping that since it wasn't about sacrifice, it was partly about sacrifice, but it was also really fun and meaningful. So I thought it might catch on, it didn't. Mm -hmm. And then you found even that wasn't enough, so you went a little bit further. So can you tell me about your journey? If it was 1990 still, I would say that would be a great path for people to explore because there would be time for the culture to kind of shift through those mechanisms. But yeah, like just chaining myself to the door handle of a bank was probably 100 times more impactful than anything I've done, including all of that uh, reducing my emission stuff, which I hoped it would be impactful, but it wasn't. <laughs> well, it's a good segue. Let's talk about that day in April. So first of all, tell me why that day? Why April 6th? Yeah, it was two days after the IPCC, uh, the International Panel on Climate Change, released a report. What the UN has published today is a roadmap for saving the world from the worst of climate change. But it comes with a massive warning. It is now or never. Emissions of greenhouse gases need to peak within the next three years. And even then, we'd still need new technology to suck carbon dioxide out of the skies by the middle of the century. The science has been extremely clear. And if world leaders have been ignoring us for decades, why would they suddenly start listening to us now? So we have to, get, I think as scientists, we have to get out from behind the papers and the research and start really speaking as essentially desperate human beings that see this train wreck coming and desperately want world leaders to do the right thing. Yeah. So get out from behind the desk you did. I'm looking at a video. You're in a white lab coat and... Um, it's kind of corny, but kind of, <laughs> kind of fun, right? It's all about the image there. And you're with a few other scientists and you are chained to these glass doors of this really big bank. So what was going through your head? What did you think of the police presence? Because there were tens of police officers out there. Were you expecting what happened? Yeah, I think there were almost uh, 100 police in full riot gear. Um, 
the moment I did it, you know, I had adrenaline. And as soon as I was there, I just had this sense of, you know, I'm, this is the right thing to do. I'm, I'm glad I did this. I was concerned that I could lose my job, but I was willing to take that risk because, again, I just see this so clearly and I know I'm not wrong about it. And I know we're heading down the wrong path. Despite the risks, Peter said, as far as civil disobedience goes, the dangers were relatively low. The trespassing charge he received is just a misdemeanor. That's in contrast to what other activists face around the world, even as new forms of protest are growing in countries like the UK and the US. It's the extreme lengths that campaigners have gone to, gluing themselves to paintings and pavements and vandalizing buildings. After Brit Experience's hottest day in history, climate campaigners Just Stop Oil have told people this morning to, quote, not to use the M25 motorway. They intend to block the highway. This is a protester with the group Just Stop Oil. Sending a message to the government, the governments of the world. The International Energy Agency has said no new oil. There can be no new oil. A group of staffers staged a sit-in in Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer's office, a demonstration that did end in their mass arrest. But new punishments are coming into effect, too. A new UK law means that climate protesters who block roads could face a year in prison. And elsewhere in the world, physical danger for activists is on the rise, too. Environmental activists are being arrested, jailed, even killed for trying to protect our planet. In 2021, the UK-based group Global Witness recorded the highest number of murders since it began tracking them more than a decade ago. Global Witness believes the rise may be due to activists becoming more outspoken about climate change. In the US, where the risks are lower, Peter was hoping his fellow scientists would become more outspoken, too. I thought that you know, the floodgate would be opened and uh, lots and lots of scientists would start uh, joining in. And it was more of a trickle, and uh, that was a little bit disappointing. After the action, one of the first things I did was to call a few of my friends and fellow scientists, activists, who, who I'd known for a long time, and to basically say, hey, would you be willing to do civil disobedience action like this. And I just got basically excuses like, oh, I don't want to risk my job. I have to support my family. Um, you know, also some chastisement that basically I was a white male and was in this position of privilege. And somehow that became an excuse for them not doing climate civil disobedience, which I couldn't really understand. Like my feeling is that those of us with that privilege have even more of a responsibility to take action. Climate breakdown is going to obviously affect people in the global south and working class, vulnerable people much, much more dramatically and much earlier than other people. And that's why Peter has been in such disbelief watching the climate aftermath of the war in Ukraine. A liquid natural gas terminal is to be built, one of several such installations ready, potentially, to receive shipments of LNG from Qatar and elsewhere. The East Mediterranean pipeline could connect gas reserves in the Levantine Basin to Greece in mainland Europe. Europe is shopping around for new energy suppliers and is turning to Africa for its natural gas imports. Countries such as Algeria, Nigeria and Egypt have significant gas reserves but they remain largely undeveloped. 
we're in a drill baby drill phase right now globally. They said, oh man, like uh, we can't, um, you know, be reliant on Russian gas and oil. So we got to start drilling more everywhere. We got to drill in the Arctic. We got to drill under here. We got to drill under there. We got to open the Gulf of Mexico. We got to go over and beg OPEC to increase production. I mean, it was really crazy how all discussion of climate change and climate action just went completely out the window. There have been limited moves in the right direction. The EU recently banned new cars reliant on fossil fuels by 2035. And the U.S. Congress is moving forward a climate and energy bill that would mean billions for renewable energy and climate justice if it passes. But the bill would also mean more new opportunities for oil and gas projects. Peter says none of the moves so far are nearly enough. And it's just a remarkable moment in the history of humanity, I think, that we're at this crossroads as a species and we chose the path that would benefit the global rich the most and that would basically ensure the uh, continued severe degradation of Earth's life support systems. That crossroads that Peter's talking about, that's where we're stuck. And for journalists, well, we've been documenting it for a long time because it looks different depending where you are on Earth. Over the years, people have shared the impact from vantage points across the globe with the take, including some of our own journalists. This is correspondent Lucia Newman in Santiago, Chile, who's been covering the mega drought there. I feel very lucky that I still can get water out of the tab, good, clean water, but I'm wondering how long that will last. You know, we were brought up thinking that water was an, an eternal resource. And people are selfish. As long as it's not impacting them personally, they have a hard time recalibrating their habits. And in Honduras, journalist Monica Villamizar heard from climate refugees coming north who are losing their way of life as their crops dry up. You feel a little bit, a tiny bit of the person's pain and realize what it means to be attached to the land because you're planting things that you're using to feed your family or to feed towns and cities. But in countries where the effects are strongest, for people who can't or won't leave, they have to adapt. This is researcher Karim Al-Gindi talking about extreme heat in the Middle East. People cannot live in indoors all the time. This spaceship Earth type of mentality that we will exist against all of the environment surrounding us is, ver- is very hard to have all the time. And in Bangladesh, Salim Al-Haq, an expert on climate change adaptation. In the global south, we have no arguments. We all know it. We don't need IPCC reports. We are dealing with it. In Bangladesh, we're having floods and cyclones all the time. Dr. Huck says there's a lot for other countries to learn from how his home has adapted. The rest of the world can learn from Bangladesh how to adapt to these impacts because they're going to happen everywhere now, not just to us. What we hear again and again is that this is a human-made crisis with human solutions. Like from Nisar Majid's research on the famine in Somalia, where more international support could blunt the effects of drought in a country on the front line of climate change. Definitely, Somalia is on the front line. However, that is only one factor, and there are always man-made factors. You can't stop a drought, but you can do quite a lot to assist people and to stop a drought turning into a famine and to stop people suffering and dying in the end. 
And for a note Tong, the former president of the sea-level island nation of Kiribati, hopelessness over the inaction of more powerful nations is not an option. Sometimes I wonder, do they care or don't they care? Which is part of the collateral in their search, insatiable search for wealth and power. I, I can assure you, uh, it's uh, over time, there are moments when I just give up and I say, oh, what am I doing? Am I wasting my time? Let's just wait for it to happen and see what goes. And of course, my wife sometimes reminds me, no, you can't do that. You've got to keep going because I've got more than 20 grandchildren. There are many more moments coming in the climate crisis that it's too late to stop. But for everyone we've spoken to, including Peter, the key is that there is still time left. It felt good to join the ranks in solidarity, to stand up for the planet and all the people on the planet. It's deeply humbling. When you take an action that puts yourself at risk, people pay attention. Like, they can't help but pay attention because that's, there's something, there's something about the way our brains work and the way that we relate to each other, where when somebody is willing to take a risk like that, it just speaks volumes about how deeply they believe what they're doing. And that's The Take. To hear more from the people in this episode, check out our climate playlist on Spotify while we're on hiatus. The link is in our show notes. This episode was produced by Alexandra Locke with Chloe K. Lee, Nagin Oliay, Amy Walters, Ruby Zaman, May Alvarez, and me, Malika Bilal. Alex Roldan is our sound designer. Tim St. Clair mixed this episode. Our engagement producers are Aya Al-Milek and Adam Abugad. We'll be back in September, but in the meantime, we want to stay in touch. Find us on Instagram and Twitter at AJE Podcasts or on Facebook at Al Jazeera English Podcasts.